Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, uh, me and Joanne flew out to Arizona this weekend to see the Eagles football game. And we flew out of Burbank. Now, we live in Burbank, but when I would always go to travel to see her before she moved out, I would fly out of LAX. And LAX, you get there, and there's always a big line. And the Burbank airport's like 10 minutes from our house. So we jump an Uber over there, and it was just amazing. You know, you, you always sit there and say we have to give ourselves two hours' time. And we got there, and no lie, from my door to the gate was like 20 minutes. Like security, there was no one. And we both we both had, you know, just a carry-on bag, so it was nothing big. And it was just great. But, but I flew southwest, and I, I never fly southwest. And... I think there's a reason why. Well, we, we paid the twelve fifty extra to get the, the earlier seating. It was well worth it. But I was really annoyed because, you know, a few years ago when I got out of the hospital and you know, I, was, I was sick, I was still flying back and forth to see Joanne. In fact, before I went into the hospital, I, I had a heart condition I didn't know about. And I flew. And I didn't get, you know, I, I could barely get to the plane, drag my luggage. But with Southwest, it's like everybody was in wheelchairs. And it wasn't, it was not, now there was two old people, let's give him, but there was five heavy people, not obese, but heavy people. And I was really irritated because I sat there and I went through that. And I know, you know, when my dad, I mean, after my dad had a stroke, he would, you could never get him in a wheelchair, but it was just disgusting. I know, when I flew Virgin, I, I never saw someone in a wheelchair. There was like seven people. Anyway, enough about that. It was a great time. Arizona was great. And uh, we have a great guest. I was watching the show Stalker and I said, man, Man, that guy looks familiar. And Joanne watches so much TV. She says, yes, that guy looks familiar. And then I went on and an amazing resume. Not only is he an actor, he's a producer. You're an entrepreneur somewhat too. And then the guest is Lewis Hertham. How you doing, Lewis? I'm doing great, Stephen. Good to see you. Good. You were, you were laughing a little bit. Do you fly a lot? Is that what it is? <laughs> I, I do. And I fly Southwest uh, almost exclusively. So uh, that that's so funny because, you know, you... And, and of course, I buy the twelve fifty. It's worth you know, it. it. It's worth it because you know setting your timer to to get you know twenty four hours, and you gotta you gotta you know be like literally within five minutes to get the A if you do it yourself. So yeah, pay the pay the extra, and then you get there, and you know the pre boarding fills up half the plane. It, it's it, it is a little frustrating, but well, what's weird with the A was because we bought it, but on the way there, it was we were twenty third and twenty fourth. And which, mm-hmm. which is fine. Yeah. On the way back, we were 32 and 33, which surprised me because the plane was almost half empty. But I thought if you pay for it, I thought we'd be a little bit earlier. But it was all right. It, well, it used to be. I, I can remember when you when I used to do it myself, I would get, you know, 12, 15, something like that. But now when you pay this extra, it's always in the 30s and sometimes even the 40s. But, you know, I found if, if you're in the A or, or even because I want an aisle. That's just give me an aisle seat, and I'm happy. See, I'm know? the same way. When I because I, I flew back and forth for two years almost. My girlfriend before she moved out here, mm-hmm. and I had a heart condition, and I wow. still have it. But it's, I'm, I'm so much healthier. But I you look healthy. Yeah, thank you. I do. I mean, but I, I had a, at the time I had to take a diuretic, so you have to pee a lot. Right. And so I want the aisle because I never want to be that person who. I mean, I saw a guy get up. This is no lie. The the flight was in for. 10 minutes and the guy was against the window and me and Joanne figured out we neither of us wanted the middle seat so we got right. two aisles next to each other so we could talk right. and that sure. works but it's like 10 minutes the guy gets up and it's like you're already near so I'm gonna say I want the aisle because I want to be able to get up yeah. and just be without uh, any uh, impediment now now you're, <laughs> you're from Baton Rouge I am okay born and raised. now now is that LSU country is that is that? oh yeah okay now did now what was your what was your background growing up what made you get into acting were you, were you into sports were you into acting I mean how does well, career happen yeah it's a it's pretty interesting uh, uh I guess evolution I I uh I was a pretty good athlete, but at six years old, I uh, I was also a a, a, a pretty uh, accident prone kid, if you will, because I was you know always trying something crazy, and the uh, the six year old and uh, younger shouldn't be doing. And I was um, we uh, some friends of mine. We had raked a bunch of leaves, and we had filled a fifty five gallon drum half halfway with leaves, and we got the genius idea of pulling it to the base of a one of these backyard slides, these six-foot six right. backyard slides, and we'd climb up the ladder and jump into the barrel. Well, we'd done that all Saturday, and then on Sunday uh, we continued this uh, activity, and oh, later that day the, the family, this is like 1962, so you, you can't, you, no parent, that would hear this could ever imagine doing something like this but the family left to go to church and left me in the backyard jumping into that barrel 
a six-year-old kid. But, you know, but that's but that back then it's sort of normal. I mean, not well, like because there's always kids in the neighborhood and there's always parents around. It, exactly. That, but well, that's what I'm saying. But today, oh. first of all, parents would go, "Stop! Get off that! Don't do that!" You know, because I mean, you know, the possibility of injury. Well, I after the family left, I slipped and landed from the waist up in the barrel from the waist down outside of the barrel and it ruptured my kidney okay uh two young kids playing ball probably eight nine years old in the front yard next door uh heard me you know moaning and came took me off of the um the barrel i passed out they revived me on a swing then put me on a bike and and drove me home and without getting too much into this story I, i lost the kidney oh wow so i couldn't play sports I couldn't play organized sports. I couldn't play football, basketball, baseball. Uh, I couldn't water ski. I couldn't jump off of a, a high diving board. I couldn't do anything that might damage the other kidney because when children are young, their rib cages are very small and high. They don't protect their organs. So, unfortunately, I was not. I was a and I was a really good athlete, but I I, I couldn't play organized sports, which was really a bummer. But when I was 12 years old, my dad took me to see a film called Bullet. Yeah. The, uh, great, the great car chase scene with Steve McQueen. And that car chase scene changed my life because it, that, we walked out of it. I can still picture it just as clearly as I'm looking at you and, and exactly where I was uh, walking out of the Hart Theater in uh, downtown Baton Rouge. And I said, uh, Pop, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And he goes, what? You, you want to be in movies? I said, I want to drive cars like that in movies. And so I pursued that dream all through high school, all through school, through high school. And then when I got out of... And I was going to ask you, how, okay, so you, you wanted to drive, you pursued the, uh, the, the dream of stunt driving. So how does a high school kid go about that? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, most parents would be like, what the hell? And then it's not like something where you can take a high school class. No. You, st- I mean, how did you follow that? Because that's very interesting. Well, I followed it in my heart. Okay. You know? um, it, it's what I wanted to do. And, and I made no bones about telling people that. Um, I made it very clear to everyone that when the time came, uh, or I would move to Hollywood and, and become a stuntman. I mean, I wanted to be a stuntman. I wanted to do other stunts, but that was the focus. I, I really loved the driving. And, of course, how, how I uh, – my schooling was my 1974 three-speed on-the-floor Maverick. I mean, I, I gave that car hell. And most of my friends that know me know I was a pretty aggressive driver and, and uh, could handle a car pretty well. So um, – I mean, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And one of my very best friends uh, growing up, a, a fellow named Brent Verboys, his brother was one of the top stuntmen out here, Jack Verboys. And so I had a little bit of a connection. You know, Jack would, you know, was always somebody that was, he's, a, he's a, one of the best guys you ever want to meet. Most stunt guys are. And, uh, you know, th- so there was encouragement there. Uh, but also, you know, this is tough business, tough business. And, of course, I think, I don't know if my family took me completely seriously that, you know, this kid with one kidney wants to be a stuntman. I mean, it doesn't Right, it's the sound, sense. yeah, from the thing I've been able to play sports, and all of a sudden I want to be a stuntman. It's like, wait yeah. a second, you're going to be jumping off stuff yeah. and going through windows. You don't even want, but I guess because as you're older, though, you're, you're it's yeah, safer. Y- your rib cage grows right. down. Like, by the time I was in the 10th grade, because uh, I would go to yearly checkups, and thank God I never had any issues or anything, but... Uh, when I got to be in the 10th grade, and I was a, I was a really, I mean, I grew up in Baton Rouge, so Pistol Pete Maravich was, was an idol. And I used to go to the games, and, you know, I idolized him. And, and I, I, I was really quite good. I was not a, a big kid, but I, I really had great moves. And, and so by the time, um, and I played lot ball, and I'd play with college kids, and this I'm not really meaning to brag, but um, I was this little guy that really could handle the ball well and get to the hoop and, and, and was a good shooter. So I'd be playing with high school and college uh, kids on the lot and be one of the first chosen. So I, I really was pretty good. So by the time, and I, I got my first job when I was 10, you know, and I always worked, always worked through high school. And then by the 10th grade, my doctor said, you can now uh, play baseball, you can play um basketball you can water ski you can jump off a high dive all a lot of things i was already doing right but organized in an organized so i went out for the ball team in 10th grade made the team but by then i just i had i regret it because i wish i had continued but i was working i was making money i was making my own money for the weekends for my dating and you know right yeah and and that was more important to me so uh i had actually um 
So I, I gave up my spot on the team. And uh, so, you know, but that that's my my athletic career, short and sweet. So when you want to do, so after you get rid of your athlete, athletics and you said you want to be a stuntman. Now, did you start, when did you start getting into acting and productions and going out for auditions and stuff like that? Well, what happened, uh, uh, 70, well, I graduated in 74 and 75. Um, I was working at uh, a place called Con Turner, which was a very fine men's clothing store in Baton Rouge. And, um, you know, I was a decent looking kid, looked kind of like a surfer. I had a mop of, massive mop of blonde hair and, you know, was slim and wore the clothes pretty well. So they asked me to do their, their, uh, some of their ads. Okay. So I, I did some of their ads and then, uh, I got approached by a guy. He said, man, you, you look good in those ads. You, you ought to, who's your agent? And I went agent. I don't, uh, I don't have an agent. I just did it because they asked me to. So he hooked me up or recommended me to an agent. Her name was Dee Cawthorn and she's still down there. She's not agenting anymore. But uh, anyway, I'll never forget walking into walking into her office and saying, hey, I've, you know, I've been told that maybe I can do some commercials and, and so forth. Anyway, so she she took me on and I started doing commercials. And one day I'd been with her for a while, a year or two. Let's see. No, probably two, two years, something like that. She um, I walked into her office and she put a book into my hand. It was a play. Okay. It was uh, The Rainmakers, The Rainmaker by N. Richard Nash. And I said, what's this? She goes, well, it's a play, and they're doing it at the little theater, uh, you know. So I think you should go read for it. And I went, oh, come on, D. I, you know, I, I don't know if I'm ready for that. And she goes, well, she goes, just read it. So I read it, and it was it was wonderful, you know. And I was like, God, that that's so much fun. Uh and I said, what, what are you thinking? She goes, well, I think you should read for Jimmy. He's the younger brother. I was 24 at the time. And Jimmy's the younger brother. I don't know if you know the, the story. But, but it's, a, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a beautiful story, beautiful classic, American classic. And, and uh, so I said, you know, here I am wanting to go and jump off of six-story buildings and drive cars 100 miles an hour and, and this kind of thing. And if I, if I don't have the guts to go and try out for this play, right. regardless of whether I get it, then how am I going to have the guts to do these other things? So it literally, that's what, you know, made me do it. So I get there <laughs> and this is huge room and it's packed with people because this is the big play. This is the, you know, the play that everybody, the big play of the season. And so I tapped somebody on the shoulder. I said, where do they do the auditions? And looked at me like I was crazy and said, up there. I said, in oh, wow. front of everybody? <laughs> and he said, yeah. So... Again, I just kind of went, okay, man, suck it up. So I started reading for Jimmy, and then he called me back up to read for the younger, uh, the uh, middle brother, the older brother, and then he called me up and asked me to read for the lead for Starbuck, the Rainmaker, and that's the role I got, and that changed my life. Wow! So you got that, and now I mean, it, it must have been a great feeling because there's so many people, and you're a novice. I mean, that's Definitely I always novice. I always love when I hear stories like that because I think sometimes people just get so into their. Well, I took this class, this class, this class, but I'm still one of those people. Like I did stand up comedy for years, and I people take. Well, I got a comedy coach. Either you're funny or you're not. It's yeah, just like right. acting. You know, you can have a great teacher and more power to you, and they can teach you this and this. But in the bottom line, is the people who are producing something are going to see that. You know what? You could be rough around the edges, but if you have all the talent and you're rough, you'd rather do that than someone who has no talent and all the soft edges. Absolutely. And, See, you know, for me, it was, um, I, I guess I, I don't know, I just had a knack for it. And, and you know, I'm not saying that, uh, uh, I mean, I'm sure that if I watched it today, I'd probably cringe. But um, it did change my life because I realized that this was something that I could do. And that I liked doing was a hell of a lot of fun. And um, uh, so that's that's what started it. And then immediately after, that was 1981, like March of 81. And then I immediately uh, was cast in uh, at the local dinner theater, Auburn Lane Dinner Theater. I was cast in, in uh, playing Will Parker in okay. Oklahoma. And uh, right after that, I did Grease, uh, played Konecki in Grease at that same theater. And, um, and then pretty much moved to L.A. What, what made you decide to move to L.A.? It was just like you said, I'm tired of doing dinner theater, I'm tired of doing theater, I need to get to L.A. to actually pursue what I'm going to do? Well, I knew I had to get there soon. Right. Okay, and, and uh, you, you can never start a career in this business, as you know, early enough. Um, I mean, well, you can. You can, <laughs> you can become one of these 
you know tragedies that we right. hear about but but at that age by 24 and uh by the time i moved out here i was 25 um it, it was just time and uh, another uh you know deciding factor was that a girl that i had uh talked to about moving she wanted to move out here as well she was a model and working through the same agency she moved out here when i was doing greece she called me and said look i'm moving uh and i need a roommate and I said, count me in. So it, it was uh, a, a bit of a, you know, uh, it, it certainly helped uh, probably speed up the, the process. Because it wasn't that I was tired of doing the theater there. I, I, I love theater. And, in fact, when I got to L.A., uh, well, the first two years, I, I honestly just worked and kind of tried to. I mean, it was culture shock, dude. I was coming from, you know, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I was going to say, did, <laughs> yeah. did you drive or fly Oh, I drove. Now, now where could you say? Where was your first apartment? Because I always, I always love to find out where people live for the first time, and I ask all my guests that because it's so different. Because half the time you're coming from Baton Rouge, you don't know. It's not like as I said, I always say this. You know, I grew up in, outside of Philadelphia, New Jersey, but you go into Philadelphia, and when it's a lousy area, you know there's big, right. big tenements. Okay, there's you know you go to Chicago, there's tenements. New York, tenement city. That's right. But here, you don't know. You just go and you go, hey, that, that looks nice. Oh, there's not a lot of graffiti. Yeah. And so, so where did you move? Well, I had the advantage of of my my roommate already securing a place, and and uh, I was I lived at 2022 South Bentley, which is was in, was in uh, West LA. Okay, which um, is a block. East Bentley is the first block east of Sepulveda, and I live between um, Santa Monica and Olympic. So it was a really, it was quite a nice area. Right. It was a little tiny little two bedroom house, with you know with you know condos all around it. But it was one of the, it was one of the few houses left uh, on that block. It has since been torn down, and there's a you know huge uh, you know set of uh, condos there or whatever. But it was terrific. And I lived there for a couple of years, and then I uh, moved out and have been in Santa Monica ever since. Well, you said for the, okay, for the first two years, you were just getting acclimated, because it is, it's a very yeah. different, I mean, my girlfriend moved out, actually, it was on Friday a year ago, and now yeah. she grew up in a nice suburb outside of New Jersey. Well, not, she lived, it's long, but uh, <laughs> but for her, it was weird getting used to, because the traffic and everything, and the traffic patterns, and, and people just... <laughs> Don't can't drive. There, people run red lights here all the time. You don't. Yeah. I mean, you don't know. I walk a lot to. of places, and I sit there. And I go, and I live in Burbank, and there's a lot, and a lot of traffic. And you yeah. sit there, and you have to wait. You know, like if I cross Glen Oaks, I have to wait until that light is red, and I see that even once the hand comes up right. to walk, I got to wait it. So it's it's a lot different. So you get here, you're you're getting acclimated. Now, yeah. when do you get an agent? Do you sit there? Do you does that happen I, pretty quick? Um, I got. Uh, I did. I can't remember if I got. I remember who my first agent was. It was Nancy Borgnine, who was uh, uh, Ernest, Ernest. Ernest's uh, daughter. I, I I don't know if she's still in the business at all or what she's doing. Uh, I think I met her once, uh, but um, the uh, another agent really handled me, and nothing really happened. I mean, I was green. I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know what the hell to do. I was. Uh, <laughs> You know, I was very confident in, in the work I was doing back in, in, in Louisiana and was confident that I could do this and do this career. But people don't quite understand that, that um, that you know, it's one thing to move from a smallish city, even though Baton Rouge was the capital of the state. I mean, at that time, I don't know, the population was probably about 300,000 people, to a, a city of millions of people. It's It's one thing. I remember writing in my journal – being uh, uh, being a person in L.A. is like being a grain of sand on a beach. Being an actor in L.A. is like being a grain of sand in a bucket of sand. Right, right. <clears throat> you know, so there's not a whole lot of difference. Uh, and then you're entering into this really scary business that has no interest in you whatsoever. You know, it really doesn't. Um, it's like got enough people. We don't really really need some hayseed from Louisiana to come in here. And, of course, I had a pretty strong accent and had to work on that. And I would say, even though I had agents uh, relatively uh, quickly, um, I didn't really start. And I did get a job on The Young and Restless. Like, I did a showcase, and uh, 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 the, the casting director, I did a little under five. It was, like, you know, within a few months of being here. And I was like, oh, yeah, man, this is it. I'm on the way. Right. <laughs> Uh, but it really wasn't until uh, I started doing uh, theater, a lot of theater, in 84 in L.A. and was working out at Lonnie uh, Chapman's Group Repertory Theater and did a lot, a lot of uh, stage there. 
and really didn't start making a living till the late 80s, where I started doing a lot of TV commercials. And then in 1991, I was cast uh, in Murder, She Wrote. I was going to say, because that, that's, I mean, you were doing commercials, and I guess, yeah. but back then... There was money in commercials. I mean, back then there a was. Ton of, I mean, I've heard. The truth is, is that back then there was money in commercials, but I still missed the the, the era where there was really, really okay. good money. But I still, you know, you could You're still make twenty grand on a commercial, you know. Um, uh, but you know, back in the day, I mean, people were making fifties, and and occasionally people still do, but it's rare. So, Murder She Wrote was already on the air. Okay, yeah. and yes. now, how do you find out you're getting an audition, and was it a long process for you to get that part? Because Angela Lansbury is—it's not like you're going to some show with some hack. You know, you're going right. to some show with a woman who has—I mean, she was in the uh, the Manchurian Candidate. I mean, exactly. she's got the chops, and uh, and everyone loves her. She's so, extraordinary. Yeah. So, so you're sitting there now. Did did you know of the show when you went to the audition, or, or? Well, yeah, I did. Actually, what happened? I was doing a, um, I was actually I was doing a play called The Show Off. Uh, in in Burbank, uh, well, North Hollywood, actually. And the director, um, a man named by the name of John Petlock, who was um, a good friend and had been working with uh, quite a, several years by then at the theater, uh, was friends with the casting director of Murder, She Wrote. So he invited him to see the play. Well, the man called me in. This was in 89. He called me in to read for a co-starring one-day part where I, I uh, have this wonderful scene playing uh, pool with Jerry Arbach. His character was Harry McGraw, and he beats me out of 10 bucks. Well, it was a great little scene, went well, uh, was directed by Anthony Shaw, that episode, which who is Angela's uh, son. Well, the next season, he called and requested me to come in and do a co-star part where I had this wonderful part uh, playing uh, right hand to uh, Elliot Gould. And then two years after that, so the 91, they were uh, getting a new deputy in Cabot Cove, and you know, I got the call. My agent uh, said, you know, they want you to do this part. So when I got to set, Anthony came up and he said, "Look, uh, you know, if this works out, it could be a regular deal," and and it did. So that that's how. So I joined that show in season eight, and of course by now, the crew is you know like family, right? And well honed. It, it was a remarkable experience for those five. So I did the last five seasons as a. So that must be something crazy. I mean, because you're on a TV show. And as I said, you know, and I try to stress this to people when I, we talk about ratings. Like the other day they said about how the World Series ratings, you know, the Royals this week is uh, 16.8 million watched the first game. But when they were in it in 1985, it was 37. Well, there wasn't right. as much stuff to watch then. That's so true. for then, Merchant Rate was a top 10 show, I'm guessing. Or around it, it was top 10 from, uh, it, it debuted in 84. It was a top 10 every year after. Uh, except for the final season, and that's because they pulled it from Sunday night and put it on Thursday opposite Seinfeld. Right. So, yeah, we, and, you know, but it uh, wasn't unusual to get 18, 19 million viewers. A so show. your, your life must have changed a lot because people watched yeah. that, and I think it's like, that's one of those shows, it's a a nicer fan base like it's not you know it's like you know my mom would watch it but then right. you know my sister everyone watched that show i mean i right. was one day my girlfriend was watching reruns of it on like on hallmark and i'm like yeah. what are you doing she goes oh i love her and it's like oh god i forgot it you know so what did your did your life change drastically well, when that happened my life changed uh uh i guess you could say drastically i mean for for an actor who although i was doing fairly well with commercials and so forth so i was making a living uh, but it changed because I was a recurring character, so I didn't work every episode, but I, I could make a nice living. Right. And and so I'd, I was doing tons of theater because I love love theater. And um, so, I mean, you know, and I didn't get recognized that much, if you mean in that regard, because it, it does it is an older demographic. And to be honest with you, most of the people that would recognize me would be, you know, um, people like your mother or your grandmother, whatever. Um, so, but it was, um, you know, the, the whole experience was just phenomenal. Uh, it really was. Now, what's it like when that show, okay, the show is ending. So now, and, but you're leaving, but the thing is, as you said, there was such continuity and a family like yeah. thing on the set. When you leave, it's just, it's not, it's not the thing that, I mean, of course you're depressed. The show's over, right? but it must be a little bit depressing because they're like your friends. Like I mean, you're with them for five years. You're like second family, and now you know you're going to go on to work. But 
you're not going to really, I mean, the chances of you getting that same synergy is very, very small. Yeah, it is. It is. And um, um, I think the only time that I've experienced it to that degree was when I worked on NCIS uh, with Mark Harmon and and that group. They are fabulous. Everybody who's been on, who's done a show, an episode of NCIS, they just say Mark Harmon is like the nicest, nicest guy. And they say when you walk onto the... When you walk onto the set, you just sit there and there's not one person who looks like they're walking on eggshells. Everyone's right. just happy and it's like, and that's the way it should be. That and is it's the way like, it should be. You know, they're all making good money. The show's number right. one. That's Why right. be a jerk? And then plus, exactly. and it's about Mark Harmon. I mean, everyone forgets he was UCLA's starting quarterback right. I and mean, his father played for the Eagles. I mean, he's come from a lot of stuff. So he is that one guy you think could have the, and you should never say about it, but he, he could have the attitude, but yeah. they say the set is just wonderful. It is. And like I said, I actually said to him, uh, you know, after the second day, uh, I said, you know, man, I, I've worked on a lot of sets. And and I told him, I said, this is the closest thing that I've experienced since Murder, She Wrote. And I said, but but listen, you know, and I, and I told him, I said, you know, this all starts with number one, you know, number one on the call sheet sets the tone for the for the whole set and the and, and everybody on it. And I just, you know, I commended him. I said, this is uh I can't wait to come to work on this show. I've been, I've been on shows where after my first day, I'm like, I can't wait till this is over. Right. And, and, and with him, it's like, and, and he said something, he said, well, our goal is, is that when you leave, you'll miss us. And he, he also said one other thing about the, the, the crew and everything. He said, we have a very strict policy here. And I went, what's that? And he goes, I don't know what I can say. Just no F-bombs. No F-bombs. He said, we have a no asshole policy. Okay. And I said, well, you certainly have uh, fulfilled that because everybody is happy and friendly and nice. And, and that's very rare. And, and it is how it should be because we, any of us who make a living in this business should be thankful every day of our lives. It's just too difficult, uh, you know, to, in my opinion, to, you know, thumb your nose at it or take advantage of it or take it for granted. I want to, I want to talk about your later career in a little sure. bit, but, but I want to go in real quick. I want to diverse. I want to, I want to talk to you about how you, you produced a lot of movies and yeah. now how did, how did you, cause you're, you're working, you're acting, you love theater. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you were on a show. I mean, when you look at your resume, it's like, as I said, it's like every show my girlfriend watches, you know, CSI Miami, <laughs> criminal minds, you know, I mean, it just goes on, you know, even stalker when you're on just every, yeah. you're doing, but so you're, you're, you have this successful acting and you're, you know, and you also parlay into doing theater. So you, you have the love. Although I haven't, people, I haven't really done much. I haven't done any theater in, um, since I started producing because, you know, producing really. So anyway, to get to, get to the crux of your, what made, your what made you decide to go into producing? Was there a, right. a story you wanted to tell or you just said, here's what I want to do? Or how did you get about that? Because it's a it's a lot of hats. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's uh, it's tough. I was I saw something the other day. Somebody was asking on a, a forum uh, if they should go to film school. And uh, my my uh, advice to anyone that's uh, thinking of going to film school is just take that money and make a film. Because you'll learn everything you need to know and more. And especially now, it's so much cheaper. I remember back, yeah. like in the late '80s, this comic was this, he's a, he's a, did comedy back then. He still does it occasionally, but he was trying to make his uh, student film at Temple, and he was raising money. And like back then, it'd be like eight thousand dollars for like five minutes. You know, it was like, but now it's so much cheaper. So much cheaper. Yeah. So, so you just you sat there. So, and what, what happened? Well, this is what happened when when Murder She Wrote ended. You know, and it was a it was quite a letdown. You know, and then you're going back into auditions again, and uh, you know, and and the casting directors seemed to be getting younger and younger. And I mean, there were children. You know, I was young, but they were, you know, like right out of college. And some I I remember one that when she I mentioned Murder Murder She Wrote. This was a top 10 show and was on the air for 12 years. It's, you know, one of the best shows in the history of television. And she goes, Murder, She Wrote. She goes, yeah, I think my grandmother watches that. And, and I'm like, you think? You know, and, and I don't know. It just came over me. It's like, you know what? I'm going to need to take a little more control of the career here. Okay. And uh, so I made my first film in 1996. I went back to my hometown, uh, raised money from family and friends. I had an idea for a film. Uh, a guy that I, one of my first friends when I moved here, uh, I got him to write the script and he directed it uh, based on a story that that I came up with and we shot it. it was a it was a beautiful little film, um, 
But I made it. It was finished like beginning of '97, and that was at the very beginning of the indie film glut. Right. For example, I think uh, in ninety. Uh, six or 95, 96, Sundance got like 250 submissions for all categories. And then by the, the year we submitted, it was 1,200. And of course, today it's in the thousands that they get. It's amazing how the indie scenes change. I remember like the big, like for me, I wanted the indie movies when it was sex lies and videotapes. Yeah. And it, but it had such a, when you think about indie, well, it had such a cast. shot in Baton Rouge. Oh, Steven, was it really? Steven Soderbergh, okay. yeah, grew up in Baton okay, Rouge. Okay, but the cast, it wasn't, I mean, the cast, they were all known. Yeah. But it was just weird how the, the indie flux has changed. And now because people can get cameras and shoot for no yeah. price. So you do this movie now. Now, does it get into the festivals? Um no, I, I really was very unsuccessful, but I made, and I would say this to any filmmakers listening, um, you know, we wanted to get into Sundance or Telluride or Toronto or Tribeca, the big film festivals. And the truth is, is that even then, um, uh, it, it, that was hard to do. Um, so my the advice that I would give is, is uh, try to enter as many smaller festivals, too, that you actually have a chance of winning because... I do believe that uh, we would have won some festivals, but look, you also exhaust all your funds. I put a lot of my own money back into the film because I had to re-edit it, and, um, you know, it, it was... Um, so, no, I mean, uh, we played at the New Orleans Film Festival, and, and we weren't even in competition. It was just an exhibition. Why? I don't know. That was always something that really I found strange. But, you know, uh, but I went on. I did uh, film in 90, uh, 99 here in L.A., uh, called the Ghost with uh, Michael Madsen and Brad Dourif and Carrie Tagawa and Michael Paul Chang. We had a bunch of terrific. Uh, we had the Power Rangers as as our stuntmen. It was an action film. Region Entertainment picked it up. It played all over the world. Uh, learned a lesson there because we never saw a nickel from uh, the exhibition of that film. Uh, then uh, in 2003, uh, made a film, 2004, 2006, did a documentary about the first post-Katrina Mardi Gras because I was actually in uh, Louisiana. I was in Baton Rouge when Katrina hit, oddly it, enough. So what made you uh, one of the, because I'm, I'm, I love documentaries, and it's just something, yeah. and with Netflix, that's what's great about Netflix. You can go on and you can sit there, and yeah. it's like a candy story. Like, and and just, I always find something that, I'll just put up on Facebook. Hey, what's a good documentary? And someone will go this. And, and everyone has ideas. And, and everyone has different tastes. And it's like I, me. I love documentaries. Too. Yeah, I, I mean, like it. sports. I watch the 30 on 30s, 30 for 30 on ESPN. Yeah. And they're just amazing. You know, and I, I find about music. But what made you decide to make a documentary? And now, were you personally affected? Did you know a lot of people who lost stuff during Katrina? I, I know people who lost stuff. Now, uh, most of... Um, well, I happen to be producing a film in Baton Rouge. I was hired... Actually, and I'll segue a little bit, in, in yeah. the spring of, of 05, I was hired to produce a film for Tulane University to come in basically as an ad, adjunct professor. My producing partner, Jean-Luc Martin, and I went in. Uh, we were hired by Harold Sylvester. I don't know if you know that name, but Harold has been in the industry forever. Uh, very fine actor, writer, producer. And um, he graduated from Tulane, so he asked us to come in to produce his film. He got Tulane to put up more money than they ever put up for any course in the history of the, the school to do this. And it was a, it was an amazing program. So basically, he had 77 students that we came in. They wrote a film, and what I did is I hired professionals in the key positions, and then the kids filled in. Okay. And uh, one of the students was... Uh, uh, a, a young French girl named Marie Devatour, and she was fabulous. I mean, she just was, you know, always there when we needed us, always uh, uh, when we needed someone, and she was taking care of problems. She was just extraordinary, a real standout. So anyway, um, she came to me after Katrina saying that she wanted to produce, uh, she wanted to make a documentary about the first post-Katrina Mardi Gras because the dichotomy of the attitudes in the city. I mean, half of the city wanted Mardi Gras, half said it was too early. So she documented that, and she made this beautiful documentary. I mean, I just basically put together the, you know, the, the resources and everything so that she could go out and have the things, that, <clears throat> pardon me, that she needed. And, uh, and she made this beautiful documentary. She put all this uh, uh, popular music in it because she was doing it as a student project. Right. 
And so she put, you know, uh, what it means to miss New Orleans and, and uh, stuff you can't use and stuff you got to pay a fortune for. <laughs> so she sends me some of the, the clips and stuff. And I'm like, Marie, this is fabulous. This looks amazing. And by the time the thing was finished, it, it, I mean, it was I mean, it, 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 it was award winning. It did win some 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 awards. But um, and I had a, a distributor that, that loved it and wanted to distribute it. But when I looked into what it would cost for the music that was so integral to it that you couldn't change it, you know, it just didn't make any sense. It's fifty, sixty thousand dollars And that was for a very limited amount of time. And, you know, documentaries don't make a whole lot of money. Right. So anyway, that's why I made that documentary. But I was after I did the Tulane project, I was hired to do another uh, small independent million dollar film um, that we were going to shoot in Baton Rouge. So just oddly enough, in my hometown, which was great. Um, so uh, we were prepping, and Katrina hit. We were like two weeks into prep, and when. <laughs> Oddly enough, everything you need for hurricane relief is the same exact stuff you need to make a film. You know, generators and, and uh, right. hotel rooms and trailers and, you know, water. food and water. <laughs> I mean, literally, it's, it's almost exactly the same. So we had to shut down. Um, and after about four days of watching the, uh, that madness in New Orleans, I mean, Baton Rouge, by the way, overnight... Uh, had, you know, 750,000 people in it, and or more, possibly. A six-minute drive on the freeway turned into an hour and a half. You couldn't move in the city. You couldn't do anything. And so after uh, this this kid that was working for me on the film, worked on several of my films, Preston Clark, terrific kid, he says, we need to go down there. And I'm like, they got the thing all blocked off. We'll never get in. So we called wildlife and fisheries. We called state police. We were like, we have boats. We want to come and help. And they'd say like, well, if we need, if, if we need you, we'll call you. And we're like, have you been watching? Uh, yeah, you, you need us. Right, yeah. Any, any help will do. Any help. If, if they let all of the civilians that wanted to help go in and get those people out, it had been done in a day. So, um, or two, max. And so... He said, I just think we ought to just go. So my brother-in-law, Rich Major, and myself and, and Preston loaded up his uh, much too large a boat. We should have pulled one of the smaller ones, but it looked really official because he had a big, you know, okay. uh, antenna on it for his deep sea fish. Like, let him stuff. go. Let him go. It's Coast Guard. Yeah. You know, they're, not, they're not thinking. So we drive down the 10 towards New Orleans. You get to a certain point where we knew there would be a roadblock, and there's a six-foot-seven state trooper. He's huge. Yeah, I mean, we're in a big pickup truck and he's bending down to look in the window where are you boys going well we're looking for wildlife and fisheries well i think they might be over there and then we go over there to where this casino they have on the tin and they had every kind of uniform you can imagine uniforms i've never seen before thousand a thousand people in uniforms different uniforms and trucks and everything, sitting around doing nothing right and so we we tried to find wildlife and fisheries because we were going to say look we called you we're here put us to work uh but somebody went, well, they're at the next checkpoint. And I tapped my brother on. I went, that's it. Come on. So we go to the cop. He goes, what did they tell you? We're supposed to be at the, at the 10 and the 310? He goes, oh, yeah, it's the next checkpoint. He goes, he looks at his watch. He goes, you here for the flotilla? And we said, yes, sir. He goes, well, you're about an hour late. I said, yeah, we had, a, we had a dead battery. He goes, all right, well, be careful. And he opened a roadblock, and we went through. And the next 16 hours was something I'll never, ever, ever, ever forget. It was um, just shattering what what we saw there. It is amazing, and you see, when you see it on the news, it, it's it's depressing, you know. And but when it, see it there, and 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 you want to help, but a lot of times there's nothing you can really do. You can help, but it's not going to change. You know, and you're not going to change their lives. And I watch it when I see things with you know like the hurricanes. You know, when we get pissed if you know you sit there and you, you know, you, you I was fixing a tire and i got a stain on a shirt yeah, like. exactly and i'm yeah. like oh god you know and, and joanne put some stuff on there's a little spot and i'm like oh god you know what i'm thinking it's a, it was such, like a, a discount problems. shirt yeah exactly and i sit there and I go man but then there's people and you see like just like the memories and the pictures that's what that's what's sad i mean and to deal and see it like on the front lines mm-hmm. and also to see that a lot of people weren't doing anything i mean that's the thing when you see all those people standing around it's yeah. and it's not 
and it's your hood. I mean, that's the thing. It's like your area. Yeah. I mean, it's and that must be so much been very hard. Well, it was. It was. Well, you're in shock. First of all, I mean, because not long after uh, getting into the, uh, you know, arriving in the city, and we we snuck in really because we went. Uh, we got off the freeway and went the River Road, which is sort of the back way into the city of New Orleans. And then we came down. St. Charles goes all the way to the river, and we came down St. Charles. Now, St. Charles is that famous street with these beautiful canopy of oak trees that have been there for hundreds of years. And now all these oak trees are just thinned out. The, the lights coming through. They're, the branches are all over the street, and we're having to dodge. It, it looks completely different. It doesn't even look the same. And then, you know, we hooked up with the this, uh, this uh, man and wife team who had come in from Austin in a five-ton military uh, truck that they had bought in, um, you know, military surplus. I think they bought it in Hawaii or something like that. But these guys are real humanitarians. Uh, Rio and Leah Tandango is their name, and they were extraordinary. And we hooked up with them. We spent the next 16 hours going through the areas of the city that were flooded and, and either bringing people out if they wanted to leave, we would take them. If not, because a lot of people wanted to stay, right? Uh, we would give them water and MREs, which uh, Rio and uh, Leah had brought and paid for on their own. They're remarkable human beings, and it was, it was one of the most rewarding uh, days I've ever spent in my life because, for many reasons, but, you know, because we were doing something good, but we... It was a dose of reality. I mean, there were bodies on the street. I mean, this is an American city, and there are bodies laying there, some that have been there for a while. For a while. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, you know, after you go through that, your your whole view on Hollywood and everything must have just changed to sit there and be like, wow, you know, God, I'm lucky. You know, I, I, Absolutely. I, act, I, I can do my, comply my craft, and I can come and produce movies, right. and I can do this. I mean, you must have really just changed your attitude. It, it changed my attitude about a lot of things really did but uh, it, you know it certainly makes you i've always been uh grateful for for what i'm i'm able to do i've been, always been grateful for the gifts that i feel like i've been given you know through genealogy or or whatever god you know has uh, been good to me so but when i see you know things like that it it, it you can't help but have um a different sense about you know who's in charge and who's and what do we why do we put these people in power to do right. these kind of things and the odd thing is is that there there was uh, some people from the national police force i didn't even know there was one yeah. but there is and uh, they were very you know once they gave us a hard time at first like what the hell are y'all doing here but then they saw what we were doing they they embraced us because i'm in shorts and t-shirt it was 105 degrees you know we're at the end of the day we were taking vets who had died at the vet hospital because the lack of power nine of them and carrying them down five flights of stairs in 105 degree weather and putting them in our truck because it was smaller to bring them out to a refrigeration truck i hate to get morbid here but you know they had told us when it was daylight and of course it's summer so the the days are long uh that you don't want to be wandering around after dark uh, because people will shoot at you. And if someone sends you an SOS with a light, don't reply because you might get shot at. It's crazy. It was, cra- it was, dude, I'm telling you, it was, it's, it's like third world country. I mean, it's just, it's it was like, apocalyptic. Yeah. It was a post-apocalyptic feeling. It really was, truly was. And, and I can't stress that enough. You know, the walking dead, one of these, these shows, right. it, that's probably about what it was like. I mean, it was just eerie. And so it took us a long time to get, you know, all, all of that because we were leaving right at dusk. By the time we finished getting those bodies out, it was 10 o'clock. Nobody on the street, no cops, no, uh, 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 what do you call the guard? The, you know, National the Guard. National Guard. Nobody. And we were like, wow, we're on our own here. So we get on the freeway, the 10 freeway to go back to Baton Rouge, and there's a thing called the dip. And right as you're still in New Orleans, between New Orleans and Metairie, and it's about a 17-foot dip. Well, we get to that, and it's full. So we have to turn around. Now we're heading east on the westbound lane of traffic, and we, this police officer, you know, stops. And, of course, we look military. It's a camouflage five-ton 
Right. 68-inch wheels. I mean, this thing is huge. Uh, and we just said, look, we, we can't go this way. We're trying to get back to Auctioner where, where our truck was. And he gave us an escort. And I could tell you some other things, but it's just probably a little too. It's crazy. Yeah. So did, whatever happened to that movie? The, oh. Um, <laughs> did you end up making it? No. I, I, uh, it got made, but with a, a, a different set of producers because um, – uh, I had to leave the project. They kept trying to get the film done uh, and just spending more and more money. Uh, it, it was clearly not going to stay on budget. And uh, no, but I had to leave that project. But it did get made. I'm not going to mention what it is. But. Okay. But now, so you're act, back to your acting now. I know, yep. uh, you know you've know, you been on, uh, I mean, as I said, your, your, your list of, I mean, you're like on every show that comes out. I mean, I mean I'm looking at it, you know, it's like, I, I, I am dealing, you know, even like Sleepy Hollow. True mm-hmm. Detective. Now, I played what was, George Washington on Sleepy Hollow. Can you believe that's that? That's great. Now, True Detective. Yeah. Was that great for you because it's shot again in New Orleans? I mean, do it, you love going back to shoot? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's always great when they pay you to go home, you know, and work. So that that was terrific. And that, um, I, I, I work on a show that's been canceled, but hopefully will be Longmire. Yeah, Longmire. And, uh, now where'd that shoot? I'm sorry? Where does that shoot? Santa Fe. Okay. New Mexico. And, um, the casting directors, uh, 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 Libby Goldstein and, and, uh, Junie Lowry, terrific people. And they, they cast me in that show. Uh, and then later they called me in and, uh, I was able to book a, uh, arc on season five of true blood and they are the ones that called me in because they know when i was from louisiana and so forth when they were trying to cast this role for uh true detective and um you know they wanted a authentic louisiana man was what what the uh the breakdown said so they called me in and luckily i i was able to do that it was a terrific show it was a great i was gonna say did you did you think i mean did it was one of those things where you would start seeing the previews for it. And both of the actors, I mean, Woody Harrelson's, I mean, for me, Woody Harrelson doesn't get enough due because people, a lot of people still think of him as Woody from Cheers. Right. But you see his, I mean, people don't even remember when he was in Larry Flint. I mean, people mm. don't remember that. And he's a great actor. And you're seeing, and they're both so great in it. But when I would see the previews, the first thought was, when you see it, because I watch HBO a lot, mm-hmm. I'm sitting there going, okay, well, this has to be just a, like, one of their movies. And then you see it's going to be a, a, a series. Yeah. And then you watch the series and it's just, it's so dark and mm-hmm. just moody, mm-hmm. but not like, it's not one of those series where it's like dark and moody to be dark moody. You know, it's just, it's got that look. And I don't know if it's yeah. because how it's shot or just the area is very. Well, I, I mean, um, I, I have to throw uh, my, uh, you know, my hat into the ring of the, the third leading character in that, which is Louisiana. I mean, Louisiana is just so rich with culture and texture and everything that, you know, it becomes a character in any program that shoots it the correct way. And, and I've said this before. I, you know, uh, I did a little short film in Louisiana. Um, I think Oh five or six, no, Oh six, seven, something like that. little, just a little short film called the grapevine. And we, um, what I call steal, we stole New Orleans. You have to shoot New Orleans as it is. If you try to stage New Orleans, you're going to blow it. Um, and, and I haven't seen enough of the NCIS New Orleans to see if they're doing that, but Treme is a perfect example of just shooting New Orleans and using indigenous people because there's no place on the earth like it. And there's very few places like Louisiana itself. And I do believe that part of that mystery and everything that that uh, true true detective had that that had in spades was part of you know, of it was that setting. So their next season is going to be shot here in L.A. Right. So that'll be interesting. I mean, and Nick Pizzolatto's a you know terrific talent. So I'm sure it'll be good. You no, know, it was like being on True Blood. True, because that's a, that's such a that's a man. I, I don't watch it, and I, just because I don't like vampires. It's nothing, you know. I, I, I'm not into. <laughs> well, I was a, I was a werewolf. I know, but I'm not. I'm not. In the, my, my thing is, I'll eat Count Chocula Syria. That, that's about it. I'm not, I'm not into it. But people who love this vampire and werewolf, they go berserk. Like I know on Facebook, people True Blood. Now people must mm-hmm. that must be weird for you because it's just such a different crowd. I mean, you think you know. Through your career, you've been yeah. episodic, and then all of a sudden you're on a, a, just like a cult following. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, uh, for any actor, it, it was it's a it's a dream come true. You know, when you when you get to do something that's so 
uh, outside of yourself, you know. Not only am I playing a werewolf, although oddly enough, I'd played a werewolf in a show called The Gates. It was short-lived ABC show. But, um, you know, uh, this sort of maniacal guy, you know, is just so different from yourself. And I think that's a lot of the reason why, you know, we become actors. We, you know, it's playing. I mean, we get to play, you know, we used to play cowboys and Indians when we were a kid. And now we get to play werewolves and vampires and stuff. But, of course, being on an iconic show like that was, you know, just fantastic. And I will say that's another show that by the time I, uh, in its fifth season, had a, a, a really solid uh, crew, uh, producers, everybody was just so, so great. Great to work with. Steve Moyer. Um, I was uh, 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 privileged to work in his very first uh, directorial, the, okay. show, the first show that he directed. And he did a fabulous job. I mean, it was it was a great it was a great time, you know. Now Longmire, mm-hmm. I have friends who really love that show. Yeah. It's A and E, and A. I don't. I, don't, I think sometimes I like the show on A and E called The Glades. I think A and E had a huge following. Yeah, I think, and it's just like a lot of these shows get canceled, which bothers me. I just had uh, Alejandro Patino on, who was on The Bridge. The mm. Bridge is not getting picked up yep. by FX, which is I sad. I like gang related on Fox. I thought it was it was a fun show, mm. not getting related. Now. Longmire had a very devout following too. Very yeah. st- a southern. Still does. Really. So how does that? I mean, for you as an actor, mm-hmm. how does that feel when you're on a show that has a good following? It's getting critical, good acclaim, and, and, and then great they, numbers. And yeah, and so why is there any reason? Did they tell you why it was canceled? Well, or they, did they, yeah, they they told the, their their reason. First of all, let me just say this: that uh, Longmire on A and E was the second highest rated show to Duck Dynasty. Okay. Okay, it was the highest rated scripted show and five to six million viewers for cable for A&E. That's good. big. It's great. Okay, I mean, some network shows don't get that. Uh, of course, Craig Johnson, the creator who wrote the novels, he, he had quite a following from his books. Um, and they're, they're loyal. In fact, every just last night, Monday, at the same time where it would normally be airing, uh, the fans do what's called a stampede and, and, and Twitter and to trend. Okay. And, and, and just, I forget how many millions of, you know, so, and, and it's working. Now I do know that, um, the producers are in talks with other people. I don't know any more than that, but we're all still in hopes that the show will get picked up. But the reason that they said it got, uh, two reasons that they gave because they didn't own the show outright because they owned it with time Warner and because the demographic was too old. Now, that's one of the things that was the demise of, of uh, uh, Murder, She Wrote, because they it had an older demographic. And when you have an older demographic, your advertisements, you know, right. are, you know, instead of Coca-Cola, it's, you know, in that case, I don't know. Geritol. Uh, Geritol. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, but and, and they can charge more for the for the Coca-Cola spots or whatever. So so that's what they said it was. And I mean, you know. I'll, um, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's gone from from there, and uh, so we're it, it. It is a quality quality show, and the writers, the producers, Greer Shepard, Mike Robin, uh, Hunt Baldwin, John Comey, all these guys. I mean, and then of course the cast: Robert uh, Taylor and Katie Sackoff. And I mean, it's just a it's just a fabulous fabulous uh, show. Just so smart and. Uh, different and wonderful so we just hope it gets picked up so it does hurt yeah it's i'm just a recurring character right. I'm, I, I mean i you can imagine how they feel where did true blood shoot true blood shot um in california oh yeah okay yeah, they they would go i think in the early years they would go to louisiana for some exteriors and stuff but we shot out in calabasas and westlake the, now, the, the werewolf stuff. Do you like going out, like going to Santa Fe? I mean, it must be weird because you have to get up for whatever, just change. I mean, is it, is it odd for you or are you just so used to it by now that it's, you know? Well, I'm pretty used to the traveling uh, that you have to do in this career. But, you know, the, the, only, the hardest thing for me to get uh, used to in Santa Fe, uh, because it's a fabulous place to go, is, is the uh, it's so dry. Yeah. I mean, it's so dry. And, of course, I grew up in Louisiana where it's so wet. And out here it's almost perfect, although it's not quite as perfect as it used to be. That We definitely have some kind of climate change going on. But uh, I have to get a hum- humidifier because it's just so dry. And 
but otherwise it's uh it's great i love going there we have a few minutes left uh sure. so what, what else is coming up right now in your career anyway, we saw you on stalker but yeah but what else is going on you're, well you're... something that i'm extremely excited about um is uh and i can't tell you that much about it unfortunately uh but westworld uh i just finished about a month ago uh doing uh hbo pilot called westworld it was uh written uh, by uh, jonathan nolan and his wife lisa joy and jonathan uh, who's chris nolan's brother and who wrote Interstellar, which opens uh, very st- soon. Um, we shot this pilot for HBO called Westworld, which is based on the uh, old right. 1973 Yul Brenner film. Exactly. Um, and it was, you know, the pinnacle of my career. I got to work with Sir Anthony Hopkins, who's truly one of the sweetest human beings on the planet, uh, not to mention one of the most talented. And, right. And, uh, you know, Ed Harris. And uh, I played the father to Evan Rachel Wood, who is just a doll and... James Marsden, just it was. It, it's an extraordinary uh, a piece, and I think it's going to be huge. HBO hasn't actually uh, picked it up yet, but I think we all they, they need it because you know Boardwalk Empire is done, and you know, know. you get you got Showtime just killing him with Homeland and Ray Donovan, and HBO you know was the start of those shows like Sopranos, and Absolutely. they and they had that build and following. We have that like. We know on Sunday nights, you know, it used to be Showtime and then HBO would start. And now it's like we're waiting for that next HBO show. And hopefully this will be it because I don't think Kirby Enthusiasm is coming back. Like, you know, yeah. the com- they have the good comedies, but the dramas were good. And, and yeah. it's just one of those things. Well, I, I can tell you that. Um, I, I mean, I, I would I'd put money on it that it's going to get picked up. Uh, it probably won't be. We probably won't see anything till late in uh, 2015. But um, at the rap party, they showed a, a sizzle reel that was. You know, nothing short of spectacular. I mean, uh, if this thing, this, I think it's, you know, I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to go, and I think it's going to be good, and I'm pretty excited about that. Are you doing any more theater right now, or is that, you know, you haven't done it, but is it something you want to go back to do? I would love to do theater again. I really would. Um, You know, it's very time-consuming, and not that I won't make time for it soon. I, I will. Um, but I'm also producing some other projects that are that are in the works. Um, you know, one that I'm particularly excited about. Um, pretty, um, you know, it's probably pretty controversial. Uh, if we pull it off, I'd love to come back and tell you about it. Um, but there are several other little uh, films. I've I've been trying to get a film off the ground uh, with uh, Peter McNichol, the fabulous actor. Oh, he's and, great, and he's an amazing writer. Okay. I mean, one of the better writers I've seen ever. And he's written a fabulous uh, screenplay that we're, you know, we've been trying to get off the ground. We've come close uh, several times. And, you know, I'm not going to give up on that one because it's just too good. And uh, so, yeah, I'm I'm still, you know, I, I, the acting's great. I love it. It's my passion. It's my heart. But I do love the creative, uh, you know aspects of, of producing and you do wear a lot of hats when you I, make small I, I, films <laughs> I've heard. any uh, documentaries coming up you can do any of that again or is uh, that something you're pulling out well with this project that i was saying the kind of uh, controversial one i, I want to do a documentary as sort of a companion piece okay yeah that's always great yeah anyway i want to thank you i'll give all your information how people can get in touch with you or you know you know can follow your career how, how, how can we do that well my uh my twitter uh because when twitter came in i didn't know what the heck it was and i, I didn't put my name it's at ransack films is the name of my film company so my r-a-n-s-a-c-k f-i-l-m-s right. just like the name right so at ransack films is twitter um of course you i'm on facebook uh lewis hertham i have a fan page there and um yeah, so you, I mean, I can be, if anybody wants to follow or know what's going on, that's a good way to do it. Do that and check out his IMDb. I always get, you guys know, I always get fascinated. It's a great IMDb. It's great things. Anyway, I want to thank buddy. you for coming on, Lewis. My pleasure, Steve. Thanks for and, having me. And uh, people, okay, here's what's going on with me. You can follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot of jokes, actually, uh, especially during football games. <laughs> and I just, I love my two cents in. And what else can you do? Oh, send me an email, new email address. It's Cooper at coopertalk.net that's cooper at coopertalk.net i'd love to hear from you guys also if you go to coopertalk.net i have i think it's about 305 episodes up there you know if it depends if i do two or three shows a week they're always jumping up so you can always find them there if you have an android device tablet or phone go to the google play store 
type in Cooper Talk and my app will come up. Everything's always one word. You have to do one word because I get confused with the Anderson Cooper Talks and all that stuff. Hmm. iTunes and Stitcher, once again, it's Cooper Talk, one word. I have a lot of Cooper Talk in there. You know what I'm saying? And uh, unfortunately, crappy comedy is going to be done. We're going to start up again in January. I'll be hosting that. I'll be hosting a big show at the Azusa VFW in November 15th. Uh, Follow me on Twitter for more details for that. And once again, send me an email, cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, people, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. It's Halloween weekend. Be careful. Don't get too crazy and take Uber or Lyft. You guys have a great time.